It is, O oh Father, week after week, with fear and trepidation that I come to bring to your people your word, because we, have, we believe that you have spoken, and you have spoken to us in a book, and it is infallible, and it is inerrant, and it is absolutely sufficient for everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. We believe that we would die for these truths. And so, Father, we pray for your help this morning as we look at this text and learn some things that may be a little shocking to some. But, oh, Father, I pray that you'd protect us from error and that you'd fill us with your truth and by your spirit empower us to minister your word to one another more effectively than ever because of what we learn about the great and glorious mercy of God in Christ. So help me now, Father, to be faithful to your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just read for you John 8, 1 through 11. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Just a little side note here. They entrapped her. They set a trap for her so that they could set a trap for Jesus. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Verse 5. Now, in the law of Moses, it is commanded to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Just another point of comment here, because I'm not going to unpack all of this text this morning. And that is, you see the entrapment they're doing. If he, if he violates the law of Moses, he's in trouble. If he violates the law of Rome, he's in trouble, and he's being squeezed into one or the other, or so they thought. In verse 6, And they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No, Lord. And Jesus said, No, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. This morning we come to a passage in the English Bible that presents a particular challenge to every man who attempts to be a faithful preacher to, of the Word of God. And the reason for this is indicated by the fact, if you look at your Bible, all except perhaps the King James Bible, this passage is bracketed in your translation with, with a note that says something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. 
In other words, most believe that the story of the woman caught in adultery was not a part of the original manuscript of the New Testament. It was not inspired. For example, Leon Morris, one of the most prolific and faithful scholars of the New Testament, and perhaps has the best commentary on the Gospel of John, writes this. And we'll come, remember the name Leon Morris, because we're going to come back to him later. He writes this, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Andreas Kostenberger, also a highly respected and one of the best commentaries on John as far as I'm concerned, writes, as is widely recognized, the status of this pericope of the adulterous woman in 753 through 811 as an original part of John's gospel is highly in doubt. And David S. Dockery, and I'm just picking one, I mean, you could, you could look at 30 of, 40 of these. David S. Dockery, he was the former um, president of uh, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, writes this, This story is certainly in line with Jesus' character and teaching, but it does not appear in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Now, before you threaten to drag me out on the street and stone me, let me, let me tell you why I think what they're suggesting here is true. I think what they are saying is true. I want to explain why most scholars believe that this, this passage was not in the original gospel of John. And hang with me here because there's, uh, I'm going to make this as simple as possible. And then I'm going to suggest some reading for you. And then we're going to look at what I think is, is the point of this passage. And I think we'll all be blessed by that. First of all, the reason I think... This is not part of the original Gospel of John is because of the strange vocabulary differences in this portion of Scripture. In other words, the evidence is that uh, of all verses, these 11 verses, there are 14 words, 14 words, not one or two, but 14 vocabulary words here that John never has used in this Gospel or in any of his letters. It's not there. Not only that, but there are stylistic indicators that demonstrate that a certain person wrote this and a certain person wrote that. People are expert in this. And when they go through just this section, all of those stylistic indicators are gone. You say, well, now you're losing me because I don't know what stylistic indicator is. Okay, so I'm going to make this simple. Simple for me. I figure if it's simple for me, it's simple for you. Okay? Let's say... I'm on some speaking engagement. I'm, I'm, I'm on a teaching engagement somewhere in, in another part of the world. I go to Russia from time to time. So let's say I'm as far away as I can be. I'm in Tajikistan. I'm 12, 12 time zones away. And I'm, I'm there for a couple of weeks. And suddenly I receive a letter, and it's from my wife. And uh, after reading the letter, I kind of scratch my head and say, um, wait a minute. There's just something wrong. Something wrong with this letter. And you may say, well, what's the problem? And I give it to you. And you read it, and you look at it, and you say, um, man, I, I don't see what the problem is. I mean, I'm reading this letter from your wife. She obviously adores you. She wishes she married you earlier in life. <laughs> she, um, uh, she doesn't think she can live another day without you. Okay, maybe that's pressing the illustration too far. But, but as I read this letter, I'm thinking... Man, what's the problem? It's a, it's a nice letter from your wife. And I say, yeah, but you don't, you don't know my wife like I do. I live with her all the time. And there are words in this letter I have never once heard her use. 
And there's just something wrong with the syntax. I mean, she grew up in Kansas. I know how she speaks. And it's not like this. I'm telling you, something's fishy here. And as strange as it may sound, I don't think my wife wrote this letter. Maybe my daughter's playing a trick on me again. <laughs> That's what's happening here. If you were to be able to read Greek, and if you were a, a thorough student of John, and you were reading his letter, and you know his works, and you come to this passage, and you go, wait a minute, something's off here. Vocabulary is off. The stylistic indicators are off. Not only that, but there's something even more important. The earliest manuscripts, okay? So let's think. The original, the original manuscript of John, one document. It had to be copied. And so we don't have the original manuscripts, but we have a lot of copies. And they're pretty consistent up to about 400 A.D. And then changes are made. Not changes, but additions. A, a couple, very few, but a few. And the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John don't include this story at all. In fact, it doesn't appear uh, in the manuscript evidence until about 400 A.D., somewhere in the mid-400s. Not only that, but it appears that if you, if you look at the flow of this story, just in this section, okay, you remember Jesus is in the temple. Remember, he was home and he had that conversation with his brothers, and his brother said, hey, why don't you just go take your thing public and go down to the temple where everybody else is going. It's the Feast of Booths. Everybody in Israel, every man in Israel has to be there, every male, so every father and every son, and if they can bring their family, that's even better. You have to be in Israel at the temple for the ceremonies that last for weeks long, and so everybody knew Jesus would be coming, so they posted a guard. They wanted to kill him. Somehow he sneaks in, and he teaches while they are going through this traditional ritual about pouring out the water from the pool of Siloam. We went through all of this a couple of weeks ago. They pour out the water at Siloam at the altar of burnt offerings, and it represents how God provided Israel when they were wandering in the desert. And in the middle of that, Jesus turns all of that into a metaphor of himself, and you see that in Chapter 7, verse 37, when he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his inmost being will flow rivers of water. So what's he doing? He's taking something in the temple and he's saying, This is a metaphor for me. And I am the answer to God's promise of Messiah. I am here. And then, just for a moment, skip the adulterous woman, pericope, and jump into chapter 8, verse 12, and here's what Jesus is saying here. He's still in the temple. Then verse 12, then Jesus again spoke to them, and he says this, I am the light of the world. Well, what's he doing now? Now he's not looking at the water pouring ceremony and saying, this represents me. Now he's, he, it, this may be at nighttime, and they had these gigantic menorahs. You know what a menorah is? I assume not. So here's a menorah. Every year, just before Christmas, you, you see on television, Happy Hanukkah, and you get that lamp stand, right? And it's got those, you get the little flames on it. You can buy them in the store. They put little candles in them and, and, um, and, and celebrate Hanukkah just before Christmas or around Christmas time. Calendars are a little different. Um, they had two of those, as, as I recollect, they had two of those in the temple, and they weren't small with the little candles. They were massive. I mean, you, you couldn't even stand one up in this room, maybe in the new building, but not here. 
And they didn't have just little candles. They had these flame coming out of the top of it, and it lit up the temple area. And so here's Jesus. In the daytime, perhaps, he's saying, look at the water. I'm telling you, the water is me. And here we are, perhaps at nighttime, and look at the light. And you're here. You only get to see this once a year. Everybody's looking at these menorahs. I tell you, I am the light of the world. What am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that whoever, whoever got this story of the adulterous woman didn't know where to put it and just split this context right in half and inserted it right here. In fact, um, scholars will often refer to this as a text without a context. Apparently, there were scribes who believed that this story truly was authentic. And I'm going to come back to that because I agree with this. I think this really happened. I think this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the adulterous woman probably happened. You say, on what evidence? Just on the evidence that everything in here is consistent with Jesus' ministry and the scribes and Pharisees coming to him. I think it really happened. Not only that, but the early church, after this was inserted, apparently, they all believed that this, this probably actually happened. And and I use the textual evidence at the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21, and specifically in, um, what was that last verse, uh, John 21, 25, where John finishes by saying, many more signs Jesus did, but these were included, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And then he finishes the whole book by saying, um, if the rest of the things, if all that he did was written in detail, quote, he, this is John, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so there were other things, many other things that Jesus did, that for whatever reason, in the mystery of God's providence, the Holy Spirit did not inspire to be put in the Gospel of John. And yet, there were these scribes who loved Christ. And for whatever reason, they loved this story. And they said, we can't just let this disappear. What are we going to do with it? And so they inserted it. Another, another reason we think they inserted it is because when it finally does appear in the manuscript evidence, and it doesn't appear early on, it's just not there. When it does finally appear, it appears in different places. They call it the floating text. That's why it's a text without a context. Sometimes it's a little bit before John chapter 8 or, or before these verses. Sometimes it's a little bit later in the book. And in one manuscript, it's even, they gave up on the idea, whoever that was, gave up on the idea of putting it in the Gospel of John, and they inserted it over in Luke. And so this is highly unusual. You don't find other texts in the Gospels like that. The Gospels were not written by committee. How many of you think this ought to be put in next? How many of you think this ought to be put in next? That's not how it was done. John simply wrote as the Holy Spirit moved him to write. There was a flow, and there was consistency. Now, let me go back to Leon Morris, because Leon Morris, who probably, you know, the first quotation I gave is maybe the strongest of the three that I, I read, and you can do your own homework on this and find probably 20 or 30 more. But Leon Morris tempers this discussion by suggesting the fact that the story was, though it was not a part of John's inspired gospel, quote, here's Leon Morris, 
throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this story is authentic. It rings true. It speaks of our condition. And it is thus worth our while to study it, though not as an authentic part of John's writing. Now, so here we are. We have this text, and it clearly was not a part of the original text, so what do we do with it? Well, let's talk about this for a minute. And, and you have to make your own judgment on this, but let me shepherd you a little bit. Um, I think this passage is worthy of our consideration. Now, I realize I knew ahead of time I was going to use most of my time describing this to you. And, and honestly, I had several people come to me in the last couple of weeks saying, we can't wait to hear what you say about John chapter 8, because this is widely known. And so, but let me give you a couple of cautions, okay? First, don't allow this to undermine your confidence in the English Bible. We do indeed have God's word, and we have all of God's word. The fact that a few short passages were added in the first few centuries of church history doesn't take away from the inerrancy or the infallibility or the sufficiency of Scripture. I mean, we have now so many manuscripts of the New Testament that there is no doubt that those textual variants, what they are, we know which ones they are. And I'll tell you which ones they are. The major variants are these. Most of John, uh, Mark chapter 16, the end of the book of Mark. And let me tell you why that's a variant. Uh, number one, same reason. It wasn't in the original manuscripts. It wasn't early in the early texts. But here's what I think happened. A little bit different than John, where they just didn't want to lose the story. In Mark, it was different. It seems like um, they just didn't like the ending of the book of Mark. And maybe this is why. John's favorite, uh, Mark's favorite phrase in the Gospel of Mark is, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. He's very abrupt, uh, very much like Peter, because he's getting, he's probably getting his information from Peter, because Mark wasn't one of the original disciples. But he says, immediately, immediately, immediately. And when he's done his Gospel, it's the shortest of the Gospels, because everything is immediately. He's not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it gets to the end, and Jesus rises from the dead, end of story. No more commentary, no explanation, no landing the plane. He's alive. Let's celebrate. Done. And somebody went, wait a minute. We've got we to gotta, we gotta end this. We, we've got to. And so a scribe added what is at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And the other passage that, uh, that was either added or tampered with is 1 John 5, 7 through 8. And so while it may be true that a few small passages have been added to the text. Listen to me, every eye up here. Nothing has been lost. Don't let this shake your confidence in the English Bible. And I will tell you why. To the contrary. You're going to think, how in the world? This should add to your confidence that what we have is the true word of God. You say, that sounds so upside down. How can that be? I was talking to one of the brothers, asking for prayer about the sermon this morning, before the early service. And the um, brother knows a, a, a lot more about certain parts of theology and scripture than I do. And he said, consider this, brother. Um, nobody, no scholars have been allowed to put the Koran under this level of scrutiny, and they will never allow it. The Arabic community 
who follows the Quran will not bring it under scrutiny. Why? I can only guess. And I don't want to judge motives. But here's the thing. You should know that you can't get any more scrutiny on a piece of literature than what the Word of God has undergone and survived. And have we in the process found that a few scribes added a few things they thought they were helping and they weren't being helpful, but we know where they are. Why? Because this book has been scrutinized by believers and unbelievers and liberals and conservatives and evangelicals and Catholics and and everybody has scrutinized this book and here it stands. It should bolster your confidence in the Bible. Why? Because we know where the additions are. We know it. And we take that into consideration. So don't let this shake your confidence in the English Bible. Number two. We need to be discerning whenever we encounter a quasi-Christian sect that takes one of these passages of Scripture and builds essential doctrine for their Christian community upon it. Now, let me just give you an example. Mark chapter 16, there's several things in there (coughs) that you wouldn't want to build essential doctrine on, but one of them is snake handling and poison drinking. Listen, you know why we don't come in here and say, praise the Lord and pass me a copperhead? The reason is because that doctrine is based on one scripture in the New Testament that was clearly not in the original text. And there are no other scriptures in the New Testament that support that teaching. And, practically speaking, we don't want anybody to die in the worship service. Now, this is all important. We need to be careful with how we use the Bible and how we study the Bible. As I said, there are only a few questionable passages that we know are in the text, and we know where they are. And they are questionable. Listen, okay, everybody up, every eye up here again. <coughs> Let me tell you why they are questionable and why they're not questionable. Why are they questionable to us? It is not because we don't like what they teach. Listen, there is no essential doctrine in any of these passages that is not taught thoroughly elsewhere. We're not losing any doctrine. None. On the other hand, if you build doctrine here, you get yourself in trouble. Um, And not so much from this passage as Mark, and that really being the only one. Um, And so these passages are questionable not because we don't like what's in them, but because of the handwritten manuscripts, the earliest copies of Scripture where these passages are not found. And not only that, but one more thing to consider. I mean, as soon as the Scriptures were being written, people were commenting on them in writing. And the early church fathers were taking those early, early manuscripts, manuscripts that are older, than the oldest ones we have, right? I mean, that's old. That's getting pretty close back to when they were written. Um, Completion of the New Testament somewhere in the 100s AD. And here's what we find. The earliest of the church fathers don't comment on any of these passages. It's as if they weren't even in the New Testament. And indeed, they were not. So, now... 
one more thing I've taken the liberty of doing, and unfortunately this is not going to benefit you much, um, but uh, I ordered some copies, and apparently not enough, of uh, a book that really dives into this whole discussion, and it's uh, by uh, James White. It's called The King James Only Controversy. In layman's terms, deals with the manuscript evidence in very understandable way. And so I commend this to you. We don't have any more out here, but if you're interested in knowing more about this and gaining confidence in your understanding of where the Bible came from and how we got our text and is it reliable, and the answer is yes, 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 and it's all explained in here in very easy to understand terms. So let me commend that to you. Now, as I said, I'm not going to have time now to expound on this whole text. I had three points this morning. And if you want to see the first two exposition of this text, then just get online. My notes, I think, are already online. I sent them to Mary last night, and so they should be online today. So you can see the first two points, and I just want to jump to the third here. And in order to get to the third, I want you to just look at verses 10 and 11, because I really think this is the point of this text. You know the story, and here's the end of it, verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, And I don't condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Or a more literal translation, stop <coughs> sinning. Now it should be evident here that Jesus was not exercising a modern version of tolerance that accepts all ideas and behaviors equally as valid. This woman really had committed adultery. And while Jesus does not condemn her, neither does he condone her sin. It's a big difference between uh, people in the world today who want to who argue with Christians and say, look, um, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And, and what they do is eviscerate any ability for someone to say what the behavior that you're exercising right now is wrong. It's immoral or it's illegal or wrong. And, and Jesus doesn't buy into that at all. You cannot use this text to do that. And the reason for that is because how Jesus ended this. Yes, she was compassionate and gracious to her, but she, he ended by saying, stop sinning. And it makes all the difference in the world. That is, he requires repentance from her sinful behavior. He wants her to make a clean break with her sin. And notice also that Jesus does not grant her forgiveness in this passage, nor does the woman give any reason to believe that she is repentant or that she has exercised faith in Jesus. None of that is in this passage. What we have here is simply a manifestation of, listen to me, what we have is a manifestation of the compelling mercy of God in Christ. The compelling mercy of God in Christ. Now, we don't talk much about mercy in evangelical circles anymore, maybe because you can't have mercy without sin, and we don't like talking about sin, so we don't do much with mercy. We speak and we sing a lot about grace, don't we? I mean, even the world one of their favorite hymns is Amazing Grace, but they won't sing all the verses. Not so much about mercy. And so perhaps some definitions would help. 
So you're going to have to listen to me a few times in this sermon. I'm going to tell you all eyes up here. Listen to me because I'm going to have you repeat some things. Grace. What is grace? Grace, here's my simplest definition. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Now say that with me. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Say it one more time. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. That's right. So what has God given us? By his grace, we have been saved. That's one we don't deserve. Anybody here think they deserve salvation? The spiritual gifts. In fact, the word for gift, you know what the gift is in 1 Corinthians when it's talking spiritual gifts? You know what the word for gift is in the Greek? Charis. You know what it is? Grace. Everywhere you see the word grace, charis. When you see gifts, charis. It's the same word. It's just translated differently according to its context. The gifts that God bestows upon believers to equip us for ministry, these are enablements, empowerments that we do not deserve. But he gives them. And by his grace, we are made co-laborers and co-heirs with Christ so that everything that comes to Christ at the end of time comes to us as well. We don't deserve that. And we are members of God's forever family. We've been adopted into his family with the promise that in the end, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We don't deserve that. All of these things and many more are examples of God giving us, God giving us what we don't deserve. Now, so that's the definition of grace. What's the definition, definition of grace? Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy is a little bit different. Mercy, on the other hand, is when God withholds from us what we do deserve. Say that with me. Mercy is when God withholds from us what we do deserve. Say it again. Mercy is when God withholds from us what we do deserve. I was going to make you do the hand motions, but I won't. Well, what do we deserve? Listen, we are sinners all. And therefore, we deserve, we deserve certain things from God. We deserve judgment. And we deserve condemnation. And we deserve separation from God. And we deserve alienation and punishment, and eternal hell. And this is just a sampling of the smorgasbord of things that we deserve, or I should say the list of crimes for which we should suffer. And they would be our just desserts. But just because we deserve these terrible things doesn't mean we will get them. Why? Here's why. Because God is not only a holy and just God. God is infinitely merciful. Mercy is part of his essential character. And therefore, it is an infinite attribute of God. He is infinite in all of his perfections. This is a glorious perfection. 
And so mercy, mercy is a major theme in the Bible. And it ought to be important for us. It ought to be important for us. We ought to be writing songs about mercy. Here's Charlie. Tell Charlie, somebody. Write songs about mercy for you. Why? Number one, it is a foundational attribute of God. Foundational is probably not the best term. It is an essential attribute of God. You may remember all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, I'm going to have you look at some scriptures, but I'm not going to have you turn back that far. Exodus chapter 25, um, where God was in the midst of giving instructions to Moses about how to build the tabernacle. You remember that? If you've read the Bible through, you've read those portions and lots of detail, lots of detail. And you're reading the details and your mind is thinking about breakfast and whatever else. And you're trying to pay attention, but there's just detail. I mean, rings and there's curtains and there's rods and there's pedestals and there's, you know. And in the middle of all of that, God gives instruction for Moses to, to have built the most important piece of furniture. I mean, you have the... You have the altar of burnt offerings, you have the altar of incense, you have the table of showbread, you have the lampstand, the menorah, and then inside the holy of holies, the most holy place, is the most important part of, of the furniture, the most important piece of the furniture, and it is called, class what? Well, I was going to say the Ark of the Covenant, but you, you kind of you got ahead of me. So pretend you, that you just said <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant... And then I will ask you, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there's this gold lid, and it is called the mercy, the mercy Seat. Wow, you guys are so far. Why am I preaching? <laughs> it's called the Mercy Seat. Oh, I got thinking about that this week when I ran into this. And it gave me a whole new appreciation of what the priests did. Once a year, Day of Atonement. The only time they were allowed in there. And only one guy, the high priest. So they slaughter the animal out of the altar of burnt offerings. They slit his throat. They take a bowl and they capture, you know, a good portion of the blood. And they give this guy like a paintbrush, a little broom, a, a stalk of hyssop is what it was. And he, he would walk into the holy place and then through the veil, through the curtain, to the holy of holies. And back in Moses' day, the very presence of God was there. You talk about beautiful. And he would walk in with his his little brush and his bowl of blood, and he would take it and he would sprinkle the blood on the what, class? The mercy seat. Now, why do you call it the mercy seat? Uh, first of all, why do you call it a seat? And nobody's sitting on it. Yes, they were. The very Shekinah of God where? And the Ark of the Covenant was, as it were, the throne of God. And so who is sitting on the seat? And so you come to him to this seat, but just so that there's no misunderstanding of why you're coming, the seat has a name. It's not the love seat. It's not the grace seat. The mercy seat. I remind you of Hebrews chapter 4? You come with boldness before the throne of God to receive what? Mercy. We can do that all the time in Christ. The Jews couldn't do that. Only the high priest once a year. And when he went in, he prayed and he sprinkled the blood and it was as if he were saying this. Lord, please don't give us 
what we deserve. Please don't give us what we deserve. May your wrath be poured out on that little animal and not us. God, we're not asking for grace. We're just asking for mercy. Would you please just not give us what we deserve? Please withhold from us your just and holy wrath. And here's the thing. God required the priest to come in for that purpose. Ask me. Ask me. Mercy is essential to my nature. Ask me. And then later on, and so here we are at Sinai. Moses is receiving the law of God. That's Exodus 25. Exodus 33, we're later in the book of Exodus. We've already had Moses come down from the mountain once. There was Aaron and, the, you know, the golden calf that just happened to jump out of the fire. What was that about? Talk about a lame excuse. And they were dancing and they were having their, their little concert there. And, uh, and God was furious with them. And judgment fell and he broke the Ten Commandments as if God were divorcing them. They already broke the covenant. And, and then Moses goes back up the mountain and Moses is saying, God is saying to Moses, listen, these are your people who you brought out of Egypt. I'm done with them. And Moses is saying, they're not my people. They're your people. And God's saying, no, they're your people. It just almost makes me laugh if it weren't so sad. And Moses says, listen, God, I'm just a man. I need assurance that you are who you say you are and you will be with us. So I plead with you. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I can't show you all of it because anyone who sees my face, dead. But here's what I'll do. Put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you as it were with my hand and I will pass before you and I will declare my glory. And this is interesting. This is what theologians call the verbal glory of God. The Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of Cloud by day, smoke by day, the same Shekinah that showed up when Jesus was on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured. The cloud came, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Same cloud, that's the Shekinah glory, that is the verbal, I mean, that is the visual glory of God. But here, God's going to allow Moses to see a little bit of the back part, as it were, a little bit of his glory visually, but he gives him something more. He gives him his verbal glory. And so this is how it reads. You can see it in Exodus 33, 19. Here's what God says. I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Whose name is that? His I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And what is his name? Now, some of you were thinking, oh, you know, maybe it's Jehovah Jireh, maybe it's... No, 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 no. Here's his name as he presents it. The Lord's name is this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will be merciful to whom I will show mercy. You know why that's his name? Because only God can do that. Nobody else says, hey, I, I pick and choose who I'm going to love and who I'm going to show mercy to. No, no. 
Oh, my God. Oh, my God. A.W. Pink sharpens the point on the definition of mercy here by stating that, listen to this, listen carefully here. If you've been kind of drifting, come back to me. He sharpens this a little bit by saying this, God's mercy denotes the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Let me say it again. God's mercy denotes the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. And so when God is merciful, the reason he set up the tabernacle, the reason that he called it the mercy seat, the reason that he had the priest come in and representing the people was because he is already inclined to show mercy if you will come. And so that's number one. That brings us to a second reason mercy ought to be important to us. It's not only an essential attribute of God, it is also, number two, the initial means by which God relates to sinners. The initial means. And what I mean by that is, don't jump too quickly to grace. It's coming. But isn't it theologically correct to say that before there can be grace exercised, first, God must exercise his mercy because mercy relates inherently to sin. And before he can be gracious, he must deal with the sin. Mercy comes first. You see, mercy is not merely one of, the, one of God's magnificent and infinite attributes. It is also the answer to our greatest need. If the question is, how can sinful people be reconciled to a holy God? The answer is, um, he can't, at least not, not with man. Man can't initiate this. Man can't do anything to reconcile himself to God or even to commend himself to God. If God is going to be reconciled to man, he must initiate, and he does, by his mercy. He steps out toward the helpless in need and offers us mercy to relieve the misery of our sin. Now, turn with me to Romans 9. This is Old Testament truth that's being applied through Christ in the New Testament. Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. While you're turning there, let me give you some background. The book of Romans is all about Paul explaining what the gospel is. Very technical, sometimes difficult to understand. Um, but Paul is, is getting the details right. He's cutting it really, really thin. And so he's explaining the gospel. And as he is, he reinforces the truth of the gospel when he argues that salvation of the Lord is of the Lord and not of man. And then it's interesting that he quotes out of Exodus. And he writes this. This is 15 and 16 of Romans 9. For he says to Moses... 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. What does that mean? What does your salvation rest upon? Does it rest upon, initially, your faith? No. Does it rest initially on God's grace? No. It rests initially on God who is merciful. He withholds from you what you deserve. And he is inclined to relieve your misery. That's mercy. And by the way, as the apostle is uh, kind of working through this in the book of Romans, he mentions mercy t- ten times before he gets to this passage in Romans. And we'll look at that in just a second. But keep turning to the right and get to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Because here the same apostle affirms this blessed reality once again when speaking of our salvation. He writes that God has saved us. Look at this, Titus 3, 5. God has saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, because we haven't, but according to his what class? His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So, My friend, if you don't know Christ this morning, if you're still carrying around the guilt and shame of your sin, know this. God invites you to come to Christ to ask for the mercy that he is already inclined to give. Pray from the heart like the tax collector in the temple who cried out to God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You want a sinner's prayer? There it is. Or you can use Psalm 51, it's a little longer. But this is the cry of the heart when someone comes to Christ. And I get the fact that the Holy Spirit has to work that in your heart before you will ever pray it. I get that. But you won't come to Christ without it. And this brings us to the third reason mercy ought to be an important issue to us. It is only a foundation, it's not only an essential attribute of God, And the initial means by which God relates to sinners, it is also a motivating force in our pursuit of holiness. Okay, so now I'm taking it out of the realm of sinners coming to salvation, and I'm speaking to the rest of us who already know the Lord. You say, do we still need mercy? I mean, I'm a believer. Don't I I need grace? Yep, you need grace. But again, you may not have thought about this. Mercy should be profoundly important to you because it will motivate you, understood correctly, it will motivate you to pursue holiness and sanctification. And so turn with me back into Romans, Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, and this all-important, very well-known passage of Scripture, Romans 12, 1. And as I said, in the chapters leading up to this passage, Paul has been explaining the theology of the gospel And he appeals to the mercy of God in our salvation ten times before he gets to chapter 12. And now he builds a bridge. We've been talking about salvation. 
Now he's going to build a bridge between salvation and sanctification, and the structure of the bridge is mercy. Now watch this. Verse 12, he writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, or maybe your translation says, in view of the mercies of God, or maybe your translation says, because of the mercies of God. By the way, this is a great example of why it's good to have multiple um, translations when you're studying the Bible. Because it is a translation, and trying to get the sense in our language from that language is sometimes difficult to do. And so this is great. When, in fact, even, even, and if anybody's interested in this, I can print it out for you, but even the framers of the King James Bible told those who would love and read the King James Bible Please, if you want to know the sense of the text, do what we did. Read every version of the scriptures you can get your hands on. And some of you are going to fall into apoplexic fit. Really? Did the framers of the King James Bible say that? You bet they did. And I can give it to you. But the point here is, Paul is appealing that we remember the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, or in view of the mercies of God, or because of the mercies of God, here we go, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service worship. So, the mercy of God becomes the fuel to empower me, to inspire me, to motivate me to pursue holiness? Help me with that. I'm glad you asked. And beloved, I, I hope this will be profoundly encouraging to you. Because if you're a child of God, you struggle with temptation. And just own it. You do. I do. Every day of my life. Um, sometimes I'm sitting here on the front row praying, God, help me. Focus on the scripture, not on what's tempting me to think wrongly right now. We're tempted. We live in a sinful world. We're often tempted. So how do we pursue holiness? And this is not the full answer, but this is one answer from this text. And the answer is this. One of the things that should drive us to identify and put off any lingering sin, any stubborn idolatry, and put on Christ instead is the realization, listen to me, the realization of how kind God has been to me, given how sinful you are. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And if you think you've only been forgiven a little, then you probably love him very little. And your pursuit of holiness is probably very weak. Now, can I just say something that may be a little startling and shocking? I don't know why I'm asking. I'm, I'm going to say something that may be a little startling and shocking. So if you're not mad at me yet, this would be a good point to get mad. It's going to be going, this is going to be contrary to everything you've learned from the world and much of what's written in evangelicalism. We should not be too quick to forget our former sins. Don't be too quick 
to just let it go and never think about it again. Now, there's balance here. We've got to be careful. I'm not saying that we should dwell on them in a morbidly introspective manner. You know, there's a name for that. It's self-righteousness. If I just feel bad enough about my sin, then maybe I can atone for it. It's self-atonement. It's not what we're talking about. It's kind of the remember not, but ne'er forget. Don't ever forget your sin, brother. Don't ever forget your past sin. Don't wallow in it, but remember. We should remember our past sin because we should remember how merciful God has been to us by delivering us from former sin. Listen, when Paul, in the book of Philippians, says, forgetting what lies behind. Can you remember the context there? He wasn't talking about his sin. He was talking about his privileges and his accomplishments in righteousness. And he was saying, look, all that good stuff, it's useless to me. I used to tell, my, uh, I used to tell Josh before he went to college, son, word of advice to you, the greatest hindrance to your future success is past success. Because you'll rely on that. And this is true in the Christian life. Your greatest hindrance to growth and progress is your former growth and progress. Paul wasn't talking about his sin. He never forgot his sin. You say, are you sure? I'm positive. Really? No, really. And I'll show you why. Um, when we look at Paul's writings... We see three statements of his. And let me tell you where they're found, and then I'll tell you what they are. And I'll tell you why that makes a difference. They're found in three passages of Scripture that are in chronological order. The first one is 1 Corinthians, when Paul may have been one of Paul's first books. Maybe Galatians was first. 1 Corinthians was pretty early on. 1 Corinthians was early Paul. And then there is Ephesians. Now Paul's older. And then there was 1 Timothy, where Paul's at the end of his ministry. And three statements we find in these three texts. Paul speaking about himself. And listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul speaking about himself and says, I am the least of the apostles and may even be unworthy to be called. Why? Because I was, I was a persecutor and I'm a blasphemer. You know, what, you know what he means? I remember what we did to Stephen. And those poor families I put in jail just because they love Jesus like I do now. I am not worthy to be called an apostle. You look at these 13 men, these 12 plus me, and there's Peter and there's others, and, and just line them up. And put me at the bottom. I'm the least of the, of the 12. Well, that's 1 Corinthians. But Ephesians, he's a little older. And he knows God more. And he knows himself. And you know what he calls himself? He says, I am the least, not of the apostles, the 12. But I am least of all of the saints. Now we've gone from, I'm the least of 12 the 12 elite, I'm the least of the 12 elite, you know, 
how humble is that? Now I am, I am the least of every Christian who, who lives on the planet. Line them all up, put me at the bottom. But it goes further. At the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy. And he says this about himself. I am the chief, not of the apostles, not of the saints, but I am the chief, the foremost of sinners. Line them all up, the worst of them, the worst historical wretches that ever lived, and put me on the bottom. What am I saying? He never forgot. And the more he knew God, the more he loved God, the better he understood how merciful God had been to him. The eloquence of Puritan pastor Thomas Watson is unmatched on this topic, I think, when he writes this. Listen closely. The humble Christian studies his own unworthiness. He looks with one eye upon grace to keep his heart cheerful and with the other eye upon his sin to keep his heart humble. And then he writes this, better is the sin that humbles you than the duty that makes you proud. I love that. And this brings us to the fourth and final reason mercy ought to be important. Yes, it is not only a and an essential attribute of God and the initial means God relates to sinners and the motivating force in our pursuit of holiness, it is also, number four, a model for how we should relate to one another. Mercy. This means, first of all, that when we know someone is living in sin, we must take the personal risks involved in going after them to bring them to repentance. You say, is that in the Bible? You bet it is. If you turn to the book of Jude, just for one example, go back to Revelation and, and kind of rewind one page. Revelation, and then re rewind one page. This, Jude is only one chapter, and there it is. And here's what we find, Jude saying, um, verses 22 and 23, he writes this, Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What's he saying? You must be devoted to relieving one another of the misery of their sin. Don't let your brother or sister continue in sin unchecked. It's bad for them. It causes them misery. And you have the means to relieve them. Take the risk. You say they might hate me. Yeah, they might. They hated Jesus. They hated the prophets. They might hate you. Maybe not. They might love you for it. And mercy does not ignore sinful attitudes or sinful behavior in a brother or sister or an unbeliever. Rather, it takes the risk of exposing the sin and calling them to the joy of repentance and faith in Christ. This kind of puts a different complexion on church discipline, doesn't it? And church discipline and much of biblical counseling is not about punishment. It's about mercy. It's about mercy. It's, it's the goal of rescuing or restoring a person to a reconciled relationship with God and one another. And remember how Jesus related to the 
to the adulterous woman. He demonstrated profound mercy. But he also called her to repent of her idolatrous sin. He, very last words, now, I don't condemn you, but stop sinning. Why? Because there will be condemnation at the judgment. And I don't want you. I want to relieve you of the misery that you experience forever. Mercy is also concerned with alleviating misery wherever it's found. It is active in using what resources it has to alleviate financial difficulties, physical illness, relational strife, spiritual struggles, and every other kind of misery in the people we encounter in this life. I was thinking about this. This is kind of a dumb illustration, but it was just yesterday. Um, I was at the gas station. My family was in the car, and I'm pumping gas in the back, and I'm just looking around, and there's this, this older woman who pulls up, and, and she's in the line next to me, and she opens her trunk, and she pulls out a giant gas can, probably a five-gallon uh, gas jug, and she sets it on the ground, and she's getting ready, and then she kind of stops, and, and I could tell what she was doing. She's thinking, that's going to be really heavy. And so she picks it up empty and puts it in her trunk, and I go, uh-oh, that's really dangerous because that could explode. One little spark, and that's how it happens. And usually the gas stations have a little, have a little pictograph there to show you don't do that. Leave it on the ground. It's got to be grounded. One little spark in your history. And, she, and I thought, I wonder if she's going to do that. And she comes over with her gas thing, her, her nozzle, and she's about to put it in, and I say, excuse me, ma'am. You don't know me, pastor, don't run. And can I help you with that? And she said, oh, sure, what's, what's the problem? And I said, oh, just a little thing. You might blow up this part of the city. <laughs> I didn't actually say it that way, but I did say, you know, usually they have a sign here. If you go online, you can actually see this happen to a guy who was doing this in the back of his pickup truck, and there was just a little static electrical charge, and boom, he took out the whole thing. And I said, can I just help you? Let's put it on the ground. I'll even fill it for you, and I'll put it back in your trunk so you don't have to lift it. And she said, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Dumb illustration. But you know what? That's how we should live, with our radar up all the time. How can I relieve misery? How can I help? How can I show the mercy of God? And it may be snatching one from the fire of their own sin. It may be snatching someone from false doctrine. It may be just helping because they have a financial need or, or maybe they're ill. Or, and you know what? We've got, we've got widows who need to be ministered to. We, sh- we should all be ministering to them. And we've got a, a, a girl in the hospital right now because she had a rough, rough pregnancy and, and she needs to know. She needs cards. She needs, you know, her husband needs phone calls. Hey, we're praying for you. Little emails and texts and whatever. I mean, we should be blowing up, maybe not blowing up their phone, but we should be encouraging them and telling them, we love you, we're praying for you, is there anything we can do to help? We're bringing you a meal. It's mercy. And we can all do this. You know why? Because we have received mercy. And as we remember our sin and how merciful God has been to us, it motivates us. God, make me more holy. Make me more holy. Make me more holy. I don't ever want to be like that person I once was before you showed me mercy. And then spill that all over everyone you know. Well, we're out of time, and I hope this has been as refreshing a study to you on the mercy of God as it has been to me, and let me just conclude by saying this. One way we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the world is by pull upon others the same mercy that we 
have received from God. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you because you have poured out not only your grace, but you have exercised mercy and have not given us what we deserve. And every person in this room, whether they are a believer or not, has benefited from your mercy because they have not get, gotten, none of us have gotten what we deserve. And yet if they don't know you, oh Lord, help them to see that they must trust in you and place all of their hope in Christ or they will get what they deserve. But may what they deserve be laid on Christ's account in their place. May you grant them repentance and faith because you love them and you, O oh Lord, are a merciful and compassionate God. These things we pray by the authority of Jesus' name.